Cavalcade Audio Productions presents Star Drifter, the science fiction patio book series written and read by David Collins Rivera. Book Two, Street Candles. Today's installment, Chapter 31. sheds, I whispered to Small as I came up behind him. Yes, they're new. He stepped over and cautioned Smith to be wary of them as well. She nodded as she adjusted the strap of her stubby automatic, then brought up one of the numerous handheld cyber infiltration devices she owned. She tapped away with it, as we moved, but with that mantis quality of watching the world, she also saw every rock, shrub, and icy patch, and picked her way with care. It was very quiet, with just the sound of our boots crunching. An icy crust had formed on the top of the snow down here. The valley, just about a thousand meters across, seemed to represent a micro-environment where fallen snow would melt just a bit on the surface, then freeze again when the temperature dropped. It was like a thick shell over marshmallow. You'd bring your foot forward, then actually have to push down to break through, then bring the next foot up and do the same. It was slow and uncomfortable and really quite tiring. Small seemed the most at ease here with his long stride, but even he was having trouble. We made more noise than any of us were comfortable with. Smith, being the lightest, actually had a real challenge sometimes punching through the frozen sheath as we moved. After 15 minutes, we were less than a quarter of the way through, and we stopped to rest. None of us spoke except for Small, who radioed Hockner with an update. After a few minutes, we proceeded. Step, crunch. Step, crunch. Step, crunch. It was a difficult, unpleasant walk, and the valley only seemed to amplify the sound of our clumsy progress. About halfway across, we stopped once again. We were all feeling it now, the tall, handsome man included. He called his man back on the ridge once more, with another innocuous progress report. I sat down on a large rock, but it was rough and uneven, so I ended up standing like the others. Anything? Small asked the short woman as she studied her electronic device. I saw some secure crypto up ahead before we started, but there's nothing now. We might be in a dead zone down here. She stuffed the small pad into a pocket of her bag and just bent over a bit, panting. My own fatigue had blunted my nervousness somewhat, and I made an inane comment about the beauty of the mountains. They both ignored me. After a few minutes, too soon for either Smith or myself, I thought, Small moved us on. Even now, the road that ran through here was hidden under its shell and fluff covering. 
I doubted it was used much anyway because little effort had been made to improve the grade. Predictably, the lowest portion of the dell also had the deepest snow, and this came near the far end, where the hill rose suddenly. From this point of view, we could barely see the top of the house, just angles against a darkening sky. The nibbling fear which had been dulled from the effort of the hike had begun to creep back slowly, slowly, as we approached the other side of the valley. It morphed into a vague taste of peril with each step, crunch, I made. Bit by bit, it evolved into a very unpleasant ball of terror, like an electrical point of vulnerability swelling in my gut. All of our breathing was ragged, but for my part, I couldn't say if it was the physical labor or the emotion. The ice was so thick here, I had to step hard, lifting myself up for a moment before punching through, and once I did, it was nearly up to my knees. Smith could take the occasional step without even breaking the shell, but then the next would invariably plunge her down again with a hard grunt. The short woman had fallen over at one point, which was why she didn't answer the beeping alarm of the device in her bag. We stopped and let her dig for it. This took forever because she had to yank off her gloves just to reach in. When she had it in hand, it just chirped resonantly and echoingly. We're being scanned, Smith had just begun to say, displaying uncharacteristic concern. She didn't finish that thought because suddenly something big and wooden made a sharp noise ahead of us and up high, say like the doors of a shed banging open. This was followed up immediately with the siren-like whine of servos and large actuators, and there was a deep, muffled k-thump, k-thump, k-thump as a machine of size made its move. That electrical ball flashed into a burst of energy. I ducked to the left, willing myself to move, to run, to fly faster than the snow could possibly allow, my feet tearing through ice like tissue paper, step crunch, step, crunch, three steps, four. I dove for a boulder still meters away and didn't quite make it when the particle gun spoke. There was a stabbing dazzle as energy impacted the crusty, frozen earth at my back. It formed a miniature sun in the spot I'd just been standing, a light so fast and penetrating it overwhelmed my retinals and turned my eyesight into a gray swirl, though I wasn't even facing it. A fist, a fly swatter, smacked my back in mid-jump and I flew head over heels behind the rock I'd been running to. I hit the crusted snow behind it and tumbled like a dead thing. There'd been a boom along with the lightning, but it too was awesome, overwhelming, almost like a distant memory. But there was another crash of thunder, this time from behind us, from back the way we'd come. It filled the valley with the roar of an angry god. It echoed around me, and then throughout the mountains, its reverberations lasted long moments, peals and retorts fading fading away. This was buoying. It lent confidence and security, enough so that I think I blacked out for a moment, 
The world returned after long seconds. My retinals had rebooted, and I could see again, though I was getting a warning that the light amp coating was damaged. I lay on my back, blinking, then raised my head to look up. The hill above bore an object that hadn't been there before, standing on the very edge of the road, burning and snapping with electrical sparks. It cast just enough dancing, mottled light to make out the form of its tall hulk. A single barrel pointed straight out and down at us. Long and surprisingly thin, the very tip of the weapon glowed with diminishing umber, a departing specter of the hell it had just unleashed. Remotely, still stunned, I recognized the machine. It was an automated mobile armor unit, like a cross between a massive humanoid robot and a classic tank from the old days. It stood unmoving at the head of the road. Commanding maybe five meters of height, it possessed a wide, box-like base that ended in two fat cylinders that could piston up and down, back and forth, to make it walk like a man. The robot was taller than the shed it had burst out from, indicating it could fold or contract itself in some complicated fashion, allowing movement through or seclusion within smaller spaces. Likely weighing in at 50 or 60 tons, Barlow normal, it might have been painted with environmentally appropriate camouflage, perhaps a streaked and speckled white, but it was hard to say now. I'd never seen one in real life before, but that didn't matter. Everybody knew them from news vids, stories, and images of the various wars and skirmishes wherever humans hated one another. They were the sort of thing that only armies could normally deploy. Small arms fire was useless against the reinforced armor of such a machine, and even the rocket pack which had taken down that air car back at the checkpoint would have done little more than draw its attention. A railgun, though, was a different matter entirely, and flames, sparks, and dark smoke licked and bellowed from a single wide hole in its center mass. All of that flashed through my mind as I rolled on my side and peeked around the rock. It had to be a peek, because the other robot from the second shed was just stepping forward. Back around I went, knowing instinctively that a boulder was no defense against that thing. On the hill behind us where he squatted, Hockner fired once again before this new monster could draw a bead, his weapon filling the valley and distant peaks with another booming crack of divine thunder. Beautifully muzzled, the railgun emitted only noise, suppressing all telltale light and much of the heat of its attack, a true sniper rifle for taking down giants. I imagine the bang caused snowslides, maybe even full-fledged avalanches, all up and down the range. But the big, round-shouldered man should have taken the extra half-second he needed to line up a finishing strike, because answering lightning to his thunderous boom followed on a moment later, this time from the robot. My back was to the boulder, and I faced the ridge from where we'd come, from where Hockner attacked and Carmi and Dell hid for safety. 
In the blink of a demon's eye, the entire valley was illuminated by a lancing, sizzling bolt that created another dazzling burst up on the road. I squinted at the silhouette of a big man, tiny in the distance, hunched over a long pipe, a man who vanished in sunlight. My retinals went gray again, overwhelmed and offline. Though they cleared in seconds, rebooting once again, he was still there, wherever I looked, a dark pinpoint in the cold, bright distance. The fighting, the wandering, the horror, the hope, all of it was over now. A machine, a careful construction of metal, armor, circuitry, and power generation, a killing tool with no thought of its own and no hatred or pity, was the end point of the trip and of our lives. Except that Brock Hockner's second shot had not been without merit. The beast on the hill emitted a nerve-stabbing saw of gears grinding metal. It repeated it over and over along with the relentless of its peds as it jockeyed back and forth on the lip of the valley, searching for a viable angle of attack. These sounds continued for long moments, and I looked around again. The dimly illuminated shape of the thing was visible to me from the wavering yellow light of smoldering, already dying fires across the valley. Fires that meant the death of our giant killer, and maybe my crewmates. The barrel of this second machine kept moving up and down, halting halfway with that loud, ratcheting grind. Hockner's attack had partially jammed the thing's aiming mechanism. It could no longer bring the gun low enough to shoot down into the valley. The robot made one more attempt to bring its particle gun to bear, before finally giving up on it. Instead, a smaller automatic rifle, mounted along the side and previously locked in a downward position, snapped up and swiveled a bit before easing down in my direction. All of this only took seconds, but it was enough. It was adequate time to see the situation in new context. I wasn't scared anymore. I wasn't panicked, because it was no longer an enemy tank above me, lowering, killing, dropping lightning and mayhem. It was, in fact, an enemy ship, and I was a gunner. Hostile holding position along the 350-45 vector. My rifle had been thrown from my hands, but it was close, and I scooped it up. DEW disabled, counter-strike window closing. Selecting the Panther's second feed switch, tapping the little button for full auto, I brought it up. Its odd, angled stock fit right into the crook of my shoulder, feeling comfortable, natural, even wonderful. Target backup, offensive kinetic weaponry now online. It just leveled its machine gun slowly, like it had nothing but time, and I did exactly the same thing. Target sighted, engaging. The first few ape rounds went wild, but I walked the line over, coming up at an angle from one leg of the thing to the torso structure. 
The machine rocked with each explosive hit, shimmying from blasts and flashes like an ecstatic dancer. In just a few seconds, my clip was dry, but in that time, I held the stream of bullet bombs dead center. They burst and burst and burst until they were through armor, through chassis, through and out the other side. The robot's impotent main gun ripped away in the maelstrom of blasts, and then the top of the thing erupted with a cracking, ringing bang. It flew into pieces, so many burning, sparking, smoke-ribbon pieces, and they fell down around me in a shower of plastic and razors. Choking smoke now hazed the valley and hill. The machine, no longer seeking my death or anyone save its own, listed over to one side with an unhappy squeal. High, thin jets of blue flame from ruptured pressurized fuel lines stabbed from its ruined torso up to the overcast heavens. I waited for another monster to appear in the night, but two sheds equaled two armored killing machines, and I sighed in deep, draining relief. A movement off to the side made me swing over without thinking and fire again, but the apes were gone, and the panther simply clicked. It was Alan Small standing up. He looked at me with a jump of apprehension, and then a sigh of his own relief. Smith was nowhere to be seen. A round, blackened impact point encompassed the spot we'd all just been standing in, ice and earth vaporized and fused into a shallow, charred bowl. The snow had hampered the small woman's escape, and she simply hadn't made it. Wobbling and holding the rock for support, I found my feet and started back. I took three steps, then tripped over something long and soft and went to my knees. It was a leg. A holstered pistol was yet strapped to it, but bizarrely, the cold gear was all gone. Just a naked leg with a useless weapon, both now warped and broken at the atomic level. There was a scoop in the thigh where I'd stumbled into it, and shattered flesh smeared my boot with a red and white mess the consistency of smooth cream. All snow on the periphery of the steaming crater was gone, and I crawled on my knees until I found some. The crust was still hard, and actually took two or three painful strikes to break through. Then, scooping up handfuls of soft, white fluff, I cleaned Hannah Smith off of me. I should have been sick. I should have been shocked. I guess I was in shock, but there'd been so much of this, so much horror and death, I remember little more of that moment than pushing myself swayingly to my feet. Small was limping slowly, the leg of his cold gear torn and dark with blood or burning or maybe even molecular distortion of his own. He reached down and picked up something, a little data pad. It crumbled like a dry leaf. 
I looked back to the smoldering ridge behind us. Carmi! Dell! I started to stumble back toward there, but then heard the captain's voice. Here! We're okay! We stayed clear! He's... he's... God! He's completely gone! I saw her tiny, dark figure stepping into the concave spot where the big man had been only moments before. Glowing embers up there, in the trees and bushes, and possibly other things that I didn't want to think about, faded slowly. Come on, Small ordered, as he moved onward, up through the racked valley, his limp proving to be nasty and painful, and his breathing haggard. I followed him slowly, carefully, stepping over every object in my path, fearful of Hannah Smith in death, as I'd never been of her in life. There was nowhere to go but up. Nowhere else on this world that had any chance of any meaning. I had to know why taking a job had led me to this place how the pursuit of a living wage could make a man do and endure such things. I followed him to understand, because only then could I try to forget. Somehow I had the presence of mind to switch to the other clip. Anti-purse! They would be like throwing snowballs against soldiers wearing even soft flak vests but I could still aim for their joints or necks. I could still take them down. I could bring more death if I tried hard and was lucky. <laughs> that was funny. <laughs> I started giggling quietly. It threatened the build and burst out in a sick cackle. Small turned and gave me a hard look and I suppressed my hysteria with a slow, breathless shudder. The first robot stood right at the edge of the road, and we were masked from direct sight of the house. I think we both heard the sound of a door opening at the same time, not from the shed this time, but off to the side or back of the house. The tall man peeped around the machine, scanning for movement. But I had another thought. The air car. He didn't even look back at me or give a concurring nod, but rather hopped off at a fast, grimacing clip, weapon leading. I followed and was just able to keep pace, gasping through the dregs of my energy, kicking up snow so soft and ice-free up here as to be startling. As we approached the corner of the house where we'd seen the awning, we could hear the repeating, high-pitched hum of a car's engine cycle winding up, only to sputter and die, sputter and die. Small stepped in front of the vehicle, weapon drawn and aimed at the windshield. I was utterly blinded by its running lights, but he seemed unfazed, standing there unswerving with a gun and a face that were steady and cold. The driver finally left off trying the uncooperative engine, 
This car had been far from the second robot when it blew, but in a direct line, and a ragged piece of polinium the size of my forearm was lodged in its front grille. I stepped over to the driver's side. The windows were shaded, and I couldn't see who was there or what awful surprises they might have pointing back at me. I doubted the anti-purse rounds could even penetrate the car's armor glass. No one inside would know that, though, so I just settled the panther comfortably, aiming at the reflection of a fat spacer who, dark and wavering in the burning light, stared back at me with truly shocking composure. After a few heavy seconds of this, the door opened and an old man stepped out, hands raised. He was shorter and balder than I expected, and his eyes were round with fear. He spoke rapidly in low speak, to me, to Small, to anyone else he couldn't see. He jabbered in plain terror and with a bargaining tone. I had to speak loudly to be heard over it. Mr. President, Mr. President, please, we're not here to hurt you. I am President Thomas Billings of the Republic of Barlow, he pressed, switching to perfect English without a beat. His words were completely accent-free to my ears. Don't shoot! I demand to see your ranking officer! We're not with the military, I replied, lowering my rifle and holding out a supplicating hand. We're not with the blues or the blacks or any other color of the revolution. Who are you, then? What do you want? I turned to Small figuring this was his cue at last. But he just stood there in the yellow light, having lowered his own weapon. His face was no longer cold or obsessed, but no longer readable either. Delay Maharn had climbed out of the car on the passenger side. Her hands were also raised, but she lowered them when she saw our weapons were no longer in their faces. She looked from one to the other of us, frightened like Billings and visibly confused. Hounded to the ends of the earth, flushed out by explosions and chaos, caught at the very moment of escape, well, I doubt anyone would have been at their best. Yet here this woman was, truly radiant, despite worried eyes, despite desperation. The commissioner's secret files had placed her at 47 years old, hair raven in the strange light, chin tapered, cheeks round and high, eyes as black and sparkling as space. Maharn was even more beautiful than her images and vids implied. She would have been stunning, even breathtaking, in other more sedate circumstances. We all stood there, immobile, the silence bizarre and very awkward. Schemes, plans, lies, lives, wheels turning, turning. Despite all he'd put into play and personally enacted, the tall, charming man with whom I'd stormed this castle, though dirty and bloodied like a mortal now, was no less himself and no less capable of commanding attention than ever. Yet he was like a statue, stymied 
at a loss for words or just waiting. Oh, it pissed me off. Another game, even now. Smith's body was sprinkled all over the darkened valley, his second in command if I'd read it right. Hockner's was gone entirely, like a magic trick that would never end. And still this guy had nothing but time. He was actually indulging in childish hesitation. It was too much. Way, way too much. My name is Ejak DeSantos, Mr. President. I'm a crew member of the Pelican-class armed merchanter Griselda, currently in orbit. Then I gestured to the handsome, striking man at my side. And this is General Kryle Bacon, late of your secret police. You have been listening to Street Candles, written and read by David Collins Rivera. You can check out my site at cavalcadeaudio.com or drop me an email at lostinbronx at gmail.com. That's L-O-S-T-N-B-R-O-N-X at gmail. The Star Drifter theme is a piece called i by Trunks and can be found on soundcloud.com. The Street Candles theme is called Undercover by Karsten Holy Moly and can be found on dig.ccmixter.org. This production is otherwise copyright 2013 by David Collins Rivera and is released under a Creative Commons Attribution Sharealike 3.0 license. Feel free to use it for any purpose, even commercial, and I encourage you to do so. Street Candles is a work of fiction and is not based upon nor meant to portray any person living or dead or any particular place or situation. Thank you for listening. Take care.